Well, I don't know if you've ever had uh, this experience or not, but maybe uh, maybe you've had a conflict with somebody before. And uh, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's one of your children, maybe it's a good friend. And you've had a conflict and, and uh, there's been anger and sin or hurt, disappointment. And um, and maybe you've had this experience. It's really weird sometimes when that happens. It, it almost feels like there's a wall that goes up between you and that person. And you ever experienced that before? Um, you know, maybe it's your marriage and uh, you've said something hurtful or your spouse has said something hurtful. And, and all of a sudden, an otherwise you know, pleasant moment becomes very awkward. And even though the person is standing three feet from you, it feels like they're a mile away. And um, all of a sudden, the, 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 it feels like the temperature in the room changes. It, it's cold. There, there's an iciness about the atmosphere. And um, it, it's horrible. I mean, I don't know if you've been through it. it, it it's horrible. The, this person that you care about, this person that you love, it, it's like, uh, and, and there's this awkwardness and this um, anger and, and this uh, coldness and this distance. And you know how it is. You know, it, it changes everything. It changes the conversation. It changes your ability to enjoy um, things you would otherwise enjoy, you know, watching a show or watching a ball game or something like that. Um, it's, it's just this dynamic that happens when sin occurs in a relationship that, that there's a distancing, there's a coldness, there's an awkwardness. Um, and, uh, and maybe you've experienced that before. And uh, I don't know about you. I don't like that. I, I really don't like that when that happens. And this person that I love, I feel so far away from. And, and, and maybe, I don't know if you, you've had this experience too, when that happens, Sometimes the challenge becomes, how do we fix that? Um, how do we get rid of the ice? How do we melt the ice? How, how do we how do we take this person that seems so far away, even though they're literally on you know sitting on the couch next to us, and how do we come back into fellowship and friendship? How do we resolve the conflict? Uh, how do we somehow bring things back to the warmth and friendship that was there before the conflict occurs? And um, as we come to Isaiah 59 today, I want you to see that this is exactly what has happened in the nation of Israel. And in fact, this is not unique to Israel. This is what sin does. OK, and, and this is part of the title of our message today, separation, deliverance and future glory. And we're going to look at Isaiah 59 and 60 today. And to start off, we're going to we're going to read a very, very familiar passage of Scripture. I know I use this regularly when I teach on sin and what sin does. Look with me at Isaiah 59, and I want you to see this same phenomenon that happens in human relationships, this this coldness, this distance. We could call it a separation that happens, a relational separation. Look at Isaiah chapter 59 and look at verse 2. It says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. I want you to remember with me, this is probably not new, I want you to just remember with me that, that amongst Dozens of horrible things that sin does when we break the law of God, when we walk outside of his will, when we choose to go our own way instead of to follow his counsel and his guidance. One of the horrible things that happens is separation, separation. Now, now, uh, if you're thinking with me, you remember way back in Genesis chapter one, when Adam and Eve, that the first human beings enjoyed a perfect fellowship with God and enjoyed communion with him and harmony and unity and friendship and warmth and care, that, that the moment that they sinned and broke God's instructions, you'll remember, as soon as that happens, that warmth in the relationship dissolved, that closeness 
went away. That, that fellowship, that friendship, all of a sudden turned into alienation and separation. And we know that because the text tells us in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve immediately felt a sense of shame and guilt and tried to hide from one another and ultimately tried to hide from God. And, 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 and in the tragedy of all tragedies, God's relationship that he made with human beings of closeness and harmony and friendship now resulted in separation and alienation. And, and, and that's, that's what sin does. And that's, that's what Isaiah is reminding the Israelites of in this second verse in chapter 59, that our sins, the sins of the Israelites have made a separation between them and God, just like back in Genesis. And, and really, this is not an isolated problem with just the Israelites. This is truly a systemic problem that has infected the hearts of all human beings, because we know we all come into the world as sinners and that means we all come into the world separated and out of fellowship. We, just because God makes us, meaning he's our creator, does not mean we come into the world with a relationship with God. In fact, the Bible is going to say the opposite. It's going to say our sins separate. Uh, Ephesians 2 says we're actually enemies uh, deserving of God's wrath. Um, so we come in to the world alienated from God as his enemies in desperate need of reconciliation. Okay. Uh, now, now notice uh, that, that that's, I think, part of why when sin happens between human beings, that iciness, that distance, that coldness, that, you know, that, that, that awkwardness that happens when hurt and sin happen in a relationship. I think that's why that phenomenon continues. It happens in the horizontal relationships that we have with other people, but that is just a reflection ultimately of the vertical separation, the vertical distancing that happens when we recognize that we've sinned against God. Okay, so as we parachute into Isaiah 59 today, that's what we see as a reminder that sin separates us from God. Now notice, look at verse 1, which we skipped a moment ago. Chapter 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. And, and Isaiah is just reminding us that God is able to save, right? Or as the, the popular song goes, he's mighty to save. God is able. He hears. He knows. He has power to intervene. He has power to reconcile. You say, well, why is Isaiah telling us that? He's telling us that because of what he's about to say in the second verse that we just looked like, that sin separates. When we recognize that sin alienates us from God and, and it keeps us from friendship and fellowship so that when we, we cry out in prayer, we look to God and we see here in verse 2, our sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You recognize that that's not a problem with God, right? Isaiah is just saying God is not seeing, God is not responding because there's a problem with God. No, he's able to save. He sees, he hears. But what happens is sin puts a wall between people and God so that sinners are not able to access God in communion and fellowship. And we go, man, that's not good, isn't it? Um, you know, when, when ungodly, wicked, sinful people that have no relationship with God and have no fellowship with God um, cry out to God in their affliction, right? You know, life doesn't go the way that they, they want, and, and maybe it's a particularly bad thing. You know, we talked last time about, you know, you remember September 11th and all of a sudden, everybody was talking about God bless America and, you know, we're going to pray for God to help us. And, and all of a sudden, you know, a terrorist attack on our own, our own soil, uh, resulted in all sorts of unbelieving people asking for God's help. And the problem with that is that without a restoration of that separation, right? Without something happening to bring God and sinners into a reconciled relationship, God says those prayers go unheard. 
that 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 help is is not coming because of that separation. That that's very serious. And of course, Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is not a regional problem just for the Israelites. This is a human being problem that spans the globe of all people everywhere find themselves separated from God. And, and that reality that sin separates people from God so that when they cry out to God, he doesn't hear, he doesn't respond uh, not because he's not able, that's verse one, right? Not because he's not able to save, not, not because he doesn't have ears to hear, but because sin keeps that communication from happening. That sets up the rest of the chapter as, as it unfolds before us, okay? So, so track with me on that now. Look at verse three and following, okay? What's gonna happen, right? Sin has separated, uh, the Israelites from God. What's gonna happen? Look at verse three. It says, for your hands are defiled with blood. This is God's indictment now on the Israelites, okay? Your sins have, um, your, let's see, where are we? Verse three, yes. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. Now, starting in verse 5, uh, Isaiah is going to give us some metaphors of misconducts. Um, uh, what's happening is God is calling out the Israelites in terms of the, the specifics of their sin. And now he's going to use these word pictures just to drive home the seriousness of the sins of people. Look at this. He says, verse 5, they hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor, their, nor will they cover themselves with their works, for their works are works of iniquity. It's kind of difficult to understand, but what he's saying is, he, he's saying when when people like the Israelites try to make up for their sins or try to fix their sins. It, it's as, it's as ridiculous as going out and finding a spider web and trying to make garments that are going to warm you and clothe you, uh, from those things. Totally and completely inadequate is the point of what Isaiah is saying. He's saying those things don't, will not work at all. Look at verse, uh, seven or the end of verse six. Excuse me. Their works are works of iniquity. And an act of violence is in their hands. So he's saying their works are tainted with sin, and, and that's why their works are unhelpful and inadequate to bring them back into a right relationship with God. Their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. Again, listen to these metaphors here. They do not know the way of peace and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. Therefore, now let me just stop right there. What does that sound like? You've probably heard that language before somewhere. Where have you heard that language before that we read in verses 7 and 8? Have you heard that before? You can, you can unmute and, and talk. Sorry, those of you in the sanctuary, we, we can't do that. But anybody at home want to chime in here and tell us? Isn't that what it says in the beginning of the book? Yeah, so yeah, definitely we have some of the same languages in the beginning of Isaiah. But I'm thinking of a passage that's much more familiar even. Oh, um, I mean, you're right. You're right. We, we see the same language, not just in chapter one of Isaiah, but but throughout the book. But one of our New Testament writers picks up on this. Um, which New Testament author loves to quote from the book of Isaiah? Okay, we've got a chat, chatter coming in here. Romans 3, very good. Okay, so I guess the sanctuary is resounding with chants of Romans 3. And, and uh, thankfully, our, uh, our, our tech guy there uh, was able to put it in the chat window. Yes, it, it is Romans 3. You're absolutely right. Um, Let's back up here. We're not ready for that yet. Yes, verses 7 and 8 echo Romans 3, where Paul takes some of these verses and, and uses them, the same purpose that Isaiah is using them, actually. Uh, remember, guys, usually our, our New Testament authors, when they're quoting the Old Testament, 
they're they're not just you know using that verse haphazardly or, or you know they're making stuff up in a way. They are using those Old Testament passages in line with the intent of the Old Testament author. That's what Paul's doing here. He's using the verses in Romans 3 in the same way that Isaiah is using them in Isaiah 59 to, to help them to see that the, 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 the depth of their sin, the breadth of their sin is widespread. In fact, look at verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. Now listen to some of these metaphors again. Verse 10, we grope along the wall like a like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. Uh, you can imagine that, right? For someone who who is blind and has lost their sight and and they're trying to they're trying to find, you know, a Lego piece that uh, their kids dropped in the grass in their backyard. And, and we just go, this is an exercise in futility. There's no way you're going to find that. And, and, and Isaiah says, and, and uh, that that's what it's like. That's what our sin is like in terms of our ability to reconcile with God on our own. Verse 10, and, we, yes. Uh, this is just kind of an aside, but I thought this was, Interesting. If God was still inspiring people to write today, I think this is exactly what he would have them write about Mm -hmm. us today. What's going on today? Yeah, isn't that true? I mean, this this was written uh, way, way back in in the seventh, uh, seventh and seventh century B.C. And and yet we see the relevancy of it today, don't we? That's a really good point. You could you could be writing this. You know, on a Facebook post this morning and people would go, yeah, this is exactly what's happening. You know, uh, uh, people, uh, look for God. They, they, um, they, they, they think that their ability to know the divine is, is simply as, <clears throat> is simply as crying out to him. And yet we, we see here that people lack an ability to be reconciled with God because their works are tainted with it, their sin, uh, their, um, their acts, you know, even even their their charitable goodness, which uh, is great, all, you know, falls short of the glory of God. And that's where Paul goes in Romans 3.23. So you're absolutely correct. OK, listen to some of the metaphors here again. Um, we stumble at midday as in the twilight, meaning people fall into sin. They, they, they are unable to navigate. You know, it, it's, it's like it's twilight, but it's really in the middle of the day. Right. Um, among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. Now, with that, with that description of their sin, I, I want you to see that there's a couple of things going on. The Israelites are primarily, um, they're primarily talking about the lack of justice, the lack of righteousness in their land. <clears throat> and, and we can remember that because they're looking around at surrounding nations. They're thinking about the Babylonians or before that, the Assyrians. And they're going, man, wickedness and, and sin and, and ungodliness is all around us. But you see, the righteousness, the, the, the uh, lack of righteousness and the injustice that God wants the Israelites to focus on is not so much the injustice of society around them, but their actual own iniquities, their own injustices, their own unrighteousness. And we see that starting in verse 12 in what looks like maybe a mild confession. Now, if you're, if you're following along in the notes, these two sub points are not in your notes. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm neglected to put them in. So you can just write them in there. Okay. But notice in verse 12, notice the change. It's like the Israelites are starting to recognize this is about our iniquities, our injustices. Verse 12. Um, so God, um, so, so God has been talking, right? And then in verse 9, we see it switches to the Israelites talking about society. And now in verse 12, they are talking more specifically about their own transgressions. Verse 12. <clears throat> For our transgressions are multiplied before you. And our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. 
transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the streets. There's a metaphor, right? Truth has stumbled in the street and unright, unright, uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking and he who turns aside from evil makes himself pray. Wow. Look at that. So I'm calling this a mild confession. I'm calling it a mild confession because they're acknowledging sin, right? They're acknowledging that they've transgressed and they denied the Lord. But why? Answer this for me. Why is this not a complete confession just yet? What do you think? Any thoughts? Well, they're willing to say that they sin, but they're not willing to deal with how to deal with those sins. Okay, yeah, I, I, that, that's right. That they're acknowledging their sin, right? But confession is not merely just acknowledging sin, right? There, there's all sorts of people who would say, you know, I apologize, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. That's not confession, is it? C- confession is not just acknowledgement, although they're saying that they're transgressing and denying God and turning away from him. And then they catalog some of the things that they've done wrong. But confession goes a step further and does what? Repents. Repents, right. And repentance is going to involve that turning away from sin, what, what Katie was talking about a minute ago in terms of you know actually doing something about it. But, but what else does repentance involve that the Israelites are not doing? <clears throat> Any other ideas? It's, it's like, okay, so, so I've stumped you. I'm sorry. So it, it's like they're acknowledging their sin to God, but, but they're not, they're not actually saying to God, you know, we need your forgiveness. We need your redemption. We need your salvation. Um, we, we need you to intervene. They're, they're like, yes, we've denied God. Yes, we've, we've, we've been wicked, but, but they stop short uh, of doing that. And, um, now look at this, verse 15. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice, okay? So we'll turn from the extent of sin to God's awareness and verdict. God agrees with them that it was evil. My my version in the NASB says displeasing, but that's probably not quite strong enough. Uh, the, The word that Isaiah uses there is a very broad word that has at its core, uh, really evil and wrong. It doesn't always mean evil and wrong. It can have a milder form like displeasing. But in light of the fact that what, what's just been said, God's saying that this is wrong. This is evil. Uh, the injustice, the unrighteousness, the, the, your conduct it is wrong and, and evil and, and needs repentance and, and not just a, not just an acknowledgement of wrongdoing, which they have done, but an actual repentance. God, we need you to do something about this. Now, now this is what's interesting. We know from verse two that, that apparently they were t- trying to talk to God about that, but, um, that they were not, verse two tells us that they were not crying out to God in true confession and repentance, right? Now, now I, and I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. Um, God will always hear the prayer of repentance. God will always hear the prayer of repentance. Well, we say, well, why do we know that? Because 1 John 1, 9 tells that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us, right? We know Romans 10, 9. Uh, if you can, uh, um, what, how's it go? Um, uh, Romans 10, 9, I had it memorized. Uh, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, right? There, there we go, came, came to mind. God always hears the prayer for repentance, right? Th- that, that is always something his ear is attentive to. So when, when Isaiah tells us that he's not hearing prayers, when he's not responding to the cry of the Israelites, that tells us that they're not coming to him in true repentance. You say, how do we get that? Well, because verse 3 
told us that, right? Their hands are defiled with blood, their fingers with iniquity, their lips have spoken falsehood, your tongue mutters wickedness. So God's saying, you're being hypocritical, right? You're coming to me asking for help, but you're still living in your sin. You're still not repentant. You're, you're still not, your heart still have not fully turned to me in confession, okay? So God says that that situation where you're continuing in your sin, you're acknowledging your sin, but you're not fully repenting, God says that's displeasing and that's wicked. And, and this is what's really, really interesting. Look back at the text. Look at verse 15. It was displeasing in his sight that there was no, no justice. Now look at verse 16. <clears throat> and he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Now, if you're tracking with what Isaiah is doing, he's giving us another example of what we might call the gospel according to Isaiah. Do you see that? It's the gospel according to Isaiah. Look, look back at the chapter. God is able to save, right? He, he's mighty. He's great. He's powerful. He's ready to hear. But what happens? People are wicked and sinful and, and in, uh, in, uh, unjust, and, and, and their land is full of injustice and unrighteousness. And even though they cry out to God, they're not willing to repent. They, they keep trying to do good works. They keep trying to refine their behavior. And God says none of that works. None of that is adequate. And as God uh, indicts them that this is evil and displeasing, he points out to them that there is no man who's able to truly intercede to fix their condition, right? There's no one to intercede to help them. And, and th this, this takes us right back to Romans 3, right? There's none righteous, not even one. There's no one understands. There's no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that includes, you ready? Hang on. The priests, those that are called to intercede, on behalf of the people. And, and we understand that, that, that God allowed for that as, as a means to look forward to the ultimate intervention of Jesus, the true high priest. But what Isaiah is doing here is he's saying, listen very closely, there is no human agent who's able to intercede to fix the problem of the sin of people, right? And that's why we need the servant from Isaiah. That's why we need the coming king that Isaiah has talked about. That's why we need the deliverer, the redeemer. Remember that Isaiah has, in many different ways, has told us that someone is coming in the future who's going to intervene, who's going to make all things right, who's going to put away injustice and bring righteousness and ultimately bring salvation. We say, well, who is the one that's going to do that? Look at this. By, this is the second half of verse 16. There was no one to intercede. Now, what's the next verse in verse 16? What's the next verse? It's the word then. And this is a great word to underline and highlight, star and circle. We look at humanity. We see that there's no hope in this world. There's no hope in people. There's no hope in leaders. There's no hope even in an ultimate religious system. So God says, then, what's he going to do? Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him god says see no one can help you so i will act i will take initiative and i love that language by his own arm he brought salvation look at this to him god's own arm enables him to bring salvation as he brings it to the people right and his righteousness upheld him. And, and listen to this description. God says, I will act. I will intervene to, to, in, to help this helpless and inadequate people. Listen to the description here. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. God readies himself like a soldier. And we, we can hear some of Paul's language that he borrows in Ephesians chapter 6 when he talks about putting on the full, the full armor of God, right? And, and maybe 
I don't know, maybe was maybe Paul was uh, doing his quiet time in Isaiah 59 that morning when he had some of those pictures in his mind. But the point here is God is readying himself like a soldier, ready to intervene, ready to act. And we say, okay, well, what is he going to do? You say, well, by his own arm, he brings salvation. But we say, what salvation from what? And this is where we have to remember to let the context of Isaiah help us. Uh, as, as Christians, as New Testament Christians, every time we hear salvation in the Old Testament, we want to hear salvation from sin, right? Forgiveness of sin. And, and, and it's true. That is in Isaiah, as we're going to see here in a moment. But let's let the context show us what sort of salvation God has in mind when he says he's going to bring it by his own arm. Look back at the text. Look at verse 18. According to their deeds... <laughs> So he will repay, right? According to his deeds, they will repay um, wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastland, he will make recompense. Do you see that there? The, the salvation that God is talking about, first of all, is not a salvation from, from personal sin. It's a, it's a saving. It's a delivering from the wrongs and injustice that plague humanity and that have plagued humanity throughout the human experience. Do you, do you see that? That's what he's talking about. And if you missed it, just look back. That, that's what he's been saying overall in the chapter. Look back at verse 11. He says, we hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Talking about the, the justice, the injustice and the unrighteousness. That's what they need to be delivered from. Look down at verse 15 again. Truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself pray. And God saw that it's displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. So God comes, listen very closely, very closely. God comes, first of all, to intervene by bringing a salvation of righting all the sins, wrongs, and injustice by bringing wrath and recompense to those things. That's how God is going to first bring about salvation. He comes to bring about wrath and judgment upon sinful humanity who has lived in sin and injustice and unrighteousness. And, and you know, if you just want to look up for a second and, and just remember this, as we look around this world and as we see many, 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 many ways that our, that, 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 Things are not right in this world. Do I have to tell you that? Things are not right in this world. Things are horrible. Things are unjust and wrong and sinful and wicked and ungodly. And, and, and here's the hope. God's own arm is coming. We do not have to be discouraged. We do not have to be hopeless. God's own arm is, is coming. In fact, even now, the Bible is telling us God is readying himself like a soldier to come on the scene, to, to go into enemy-occupied territory, as it were, and to bring righteousness to this world. Do not be discouraged at what you see in this broken world, because God is coming one day to put it all right, to make it all right, and to bring justice upon all ungodliness and sin that so, so uh, inhabits our world today. God's coming in judgment. But notice also, he's coming in personal sin. So salvation comes not just in his bringing of justice, but <laughs> salvation comes, secondly, in his bringing of, of salvation over personal sin. Look at verse 19 of Isaiah. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. Now, here it is. Here it is. Verse 20. A redeemer will come from Zion. And, 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 and you say, well, how, how do we get redemption from sin instead of judgment of sin, right? How do we get verse 20 to happen instead of verse 18? Because we all want salvation from personal sin. We don't want God's wrath and judgment. Listen to verse 20. Here, here's the criteria. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who, what's the word? Who turn, right? Who turn from transgressions in Jacob, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them. 
and he goes on to talk about the provision of the new covenant. You say, so, so how do you know what will happen to you? Will I get the wrath of God as he comes to bring justice on sinful humanity? Or will I get the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God that brings me into a redeemed state? You say, how, what's going to be the difference? The difference is those who turn, right? That's repentance. That word turn means repentance. To turn to him in repentant faith, turn to him in confession. Those people will receive redemption and forgiveness But those who just pay lip service, those who just talk about confession, those who continue in the wickedness will receive wrath and due recompense. Okay, do you see that? Does that make sense? God comes to act in two ways, to bring justice through his judgment and to bring redemption and forgiveness through his personal salvation to all those who will repent and trust in him. And remember that that personal salvation comes as a provision of the new covenant. Now, we've seen this before, right? We've seen the new covenant before. And we know that one of the provisions of the new covenant is that new heart and that new spirit and that redemption that happens inside. And and Isaiah wants to remind us of that in verse 21. He says, this is my covenant with them, my spirit, which is upon you. Uh, My words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. That this, this salvation, this everlasting covenant is, is forever, right? Meaning we can, we can rest in the eternality of the provisions of the new covenant, that we will never have to fear God's wrath and God's judgment because his spirit resides with us and his covenant endures forever, okay? Isn't this great? God is mighty to save. He comes. He, he readies his own uh, self like a soldier, putting on a breastplate and, and putting on battle gear. <clears throat> and he will come one day to right every wrong and bring justice to this world. Do not be discouraged at what you read on your Fox News app today. Not in an ultimate sense, because God is coming. And for those that have repented and turned to him, we don't have to fear his wrath and judgment, but we know the blessing of his salvation. And speaking of salvation, look at what will happen in the future. We're just going to call this the glory of Zion because Isaiah, as he starts talking about the new covenant again, we've seen this before. Isaiah starts talking about the new covenant and he can't help himself. He's got to play the whole thing out so that we will see the glorious future that comes, not just to Israel, but to all people, all nations that would put their faith and trust in him. So we say, what's going on? What what, what goes on in verse chapter uh, 60, verse 1? We get to see the future glory of Zion, the future glory of Israel as a redeemed nation. That's what we're going to see here, okay? That's the description. So look at this. Arise, shine. For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, deep darkness, uh, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Let's stop right there. And, And you say, what's going on? Uh, Isaiah has reminding us that in the new covenant, Israel will be saved, they will be restored, and they will be glorified in the future. A redeemed Israel. This is what happens in the millennial kingdom, in the thousand-year reign of Christ. And, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But, but for now, this is redeemed Israel on this earth, glorified, restored, and saved. And what Isaiah is reminding us is when God acts to redeem his people, Israel will be redeemed. Zion will become a light of testimony in the midst of a dark world. And that's what he's describing. Okay, so so watch where this goes as I read. That's what he's saying. Verse four, lift up your eyes round and see they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in the arms. What's what what he's saying is redeem when when God redeems Israel. Israelites from all over the planet will come back to the land. They will come back to the, the, the promised 
geography of Israel. This goes back to the land promise of Abraham's covenant, right? The Abrahamic covenant. And so sons and daughters, meaning other Israelites living in other countries, living in other parts of the world, will come back to the land of Israel when God restores it and glorifies it. Verse 5, then you will see and be radiant and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you and the young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all those from Sheba will come and you go, okay, wait, wait, wait. I lost you, Keith, at camels. What on earth is going on here? Right? Let's, let's, let's make sure we understand how the camels fit into all this, okay? Israel will be regathered to the land. That's what he's talking about, right? As the new covenant takes root, sometime in the future, God will redeem the nation of Israel. They will be saved, restored, and glorified. He will regather Israelites from all over the planet, redeemed, together in Jerusalem, right? That's what he's talking about. So Israel will be regathered. Now, as that happens, Israel will become such a such a testimony to the nation, such a light. Uh, it's, it's almost as if God divine God shines a divine spotlight from heaven on the nation of Israel, and the whole world wants to see what's going on. So what happens is, People from all over the world start to come to Jerusalem. They say, I want to go see that. I want to see what's going on there. And as they go, they bring gifts. They bring presents. They bring their wealth. They bring their riches because everybody wants to come and glorify Israel as well as God has saved and restored them. So that's what the camels are all about. That's what the wealth of the nations. I mean, we're gonna, verse 6, gold and frankincense, right? Verse 7, the flocks of Kedar. Verse 7, uh, the, the rams of Nebaioth will come, right? And they will come with an acceptance on my altar. And, and so uh, look at verse 8, right? Um, or verse 9, surely the coastlands will wait for me. The ships of Tarshish will come first. They'll bring sons, their silver, their gold, right? So uh, verse 10, foreigners will build up your walls. Kings will minister to you, right? You say, what's going on? All the nations, kings and leaders are coming to Jerusalem. They all want to see this restored Jerusalem. And as they come, sons and daughters, meaning other Israelites from other nations, come. They bring their wealth. They bring their animals. They bring their 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 um, their gold, their silver. And that's what's happened. Nations will come and they will bring their wealth to Israel because they are so impressed and they want to bring glory to God's restored people as they witness it, okay? And you say, well, what is it about restored Israel that is so attractive to the nations? Now, you need to get this, okay? Don't miss this. It's, it's not the fact that Jerusalem had a brand new wall or they have a brand new temple or they have, um, you know, a, a, a great ambiance in the community. No, no, no. What attracts the world to Israel is this verse. Look at this, verse 10. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had compassion on you. You need to get this. All of the nations have witnessed God's judgment on the Israelites because of their sin and their hypocrisy, their injustices and their unrighteousness. And yet, what has God done? God has extended his arm of mercy, right? His right arm has come in salvation and redemption and in mercy and in compassion and in grace and forgiveness. And he has redeemed his people. And it is, listen to me very closely, it is God's compassion and his mercy and his grace in giving his people a second chance, right? Actually, not a second chance, probably a thousandth or millionth chance, right? As he brings them into salvation and in forgiveness and in restoration. What catches the eye of an ungodly world is the unexpressible mercy and grace of God toward his people and forgiveness. That's what does it. Now, footnote. It should be no surprise that when we look at the New Testament, particularly at a passage like Romans chapter 2, 
that God says this through the pen of the Apostle Paul. You remember it. God says in Romans chapter 2 that it's God's patience and kindness and forbearance that leads people to repentance, doesn't it? It's God's mercy that softens hard hearts. It's compassion that melts the coldness of distant hearts. It's his patience that softens the, these, these um, hearts that, that are dead set against God. And that's what we see here that attracts the attention of an ungodly world. And they say, I want to know a God that would be so merciful and so gracious. Do you see that? Isn't that, isn't that great? Now pick it up now in verse, where are we here? Uh, verse 11, your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night so that men will bring to you the wealth of the nations. You'll see that phrase a couple of times, the wealth of the nations. For nation and kingdom will not ser- uh, which will not serve you will perish and the nations will be utterly ruined. So anybody that opposes Israel will not stand is what God says. And then listen, listen to more descriptions here. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, the cypress. Okay, so we're, so we're going to the, the, the nursery, right? The, the, the tree nursery here. And God says that there will be beautiful trees and foliage that will come from Lebanon, which was known for that. And they will, they will beautify the place of my sanctuary. I shall make the place of my feet glorious. Sons who have afflicted you, listen to repentance. This is repentance, right? Sons which afflicted you will come bowing to you. That's repentance. They've turned. They're not afflicting. Now they're bowing. And all who despised you will now bow themselves at the soles of your feet. And they will call you, meaning Israel, Jerusalem, the city of the Lord, and Zion, the Holy One of Israel. So now all the nations that used to afflict and persecute Israel are now bowing down, as it were, to Israel, recognizing that they really truly are God's people. Verse 15, whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride and joy from the generation to generation, right? Um, and, And we see... Uh, instead of uh, verse 17, bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, silver, wood, bronze, stones of iron, I will make peace. Your administrators, again, talking about how uh, the surrounding nations will bring their wealth. And the nations, look at verse 16. Then you will know. All of this is done. You say, why is God restoring Israel? Why is he glorifying Israel? Why is he putting a spotlight on them that attracts the attentions of the nations? Why? End of verse 16. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. That's the point of all this. The nations will honor Israel because they know that God is truly the God of Israel. He is truly the Savior and is the Redeemer. Now, watch this. Are you watching? Watch this. What is this new place going to be like? No violence in the land, no devastation, no destruction within your borders, but you will call, this is verse 18, your walls salvation and your gates praise. And then we read, this very interesting phrase. There will no longer be a sun for light by day, nor brightness will the moon give your light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, your moon will not wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and the days of your mourning will be over. And and you should be saying, man, this sounds really familiar. You should get sanctified deja vu, deja vu when you read these verses because you've read them somewhere else. What Isaiah is doing, remember Isaiah is the prophet cameraman, right? He carries a long lens and a short lens. He's been talking about the millennial kingdom. He's been talking about the, the restored kingdom of Jerusalem on the earth. But now he blurs the lines and he looks beyond that restored kingdom to the everlasting kingdom, the new Jerusalem, right? The new heavens and the new earth. And that's what, that's why these verses are familiar. They parallel Revelation 21 verses 23 to 27. A light to the nations. We see that 
that, that God himself will be the light, that, that the sun and the moon are not needed anymore because God himself provides a light on the nations. And then the days of your mourning will be over. Verse 20, Revelation tells us that there's no longer crying or mourning or pain. Verse 21 of, Revela- of, uh, of Isaiah, look at this. Then all, your, then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan, the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten in its time. What's Isaiah saying? That it doesn't matter what people group you're from, what tribe you're from, what nation, what tongue, that all that that represented in the New Jerusalem will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation. It parallels exactly what we learn in Revelation about the new heavens and the new earth. And so Isaiah, looking all the way ahead to the eternal state, pictures a little bit of what that everlasting light of the Lord and a salvation that isn't just Israel now, but a salvation for all peoples that is representative of all nations and all people groups. The righteous possessing of the land forever in the new heavens and the new earth and the glory of of Zion. Don't miss this. This is the point. The point of all this is that God's redemption of Jerusalem his restoration of Jerusalem and ultimately the rebuilding of the, in the new heavens and the new earth of the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven and is the central downtown area of the heavenly places, if we call it that, that all of that glory of Zion, of Jerusalem, serves to bring glory to God in the new heavens and the new earth. And we take a breath and go, wow, what What a future lies ahead of us. Do not let your heart be troubled today at the injustices in the world, at the ungodliness that seems to run rampant, because Isaiah has told us God is coming. He's readying his arm. He's putting on his battle gear even now to come to bring righteousness and justice and and to bring punishment of all wrongdoers and to save all those who would repent, ultimately redeeming his own people and a restored Jerusalem, a restored Israel. But ultimately that translates into a new heavens and a new earth where salvation reigns, where God is glorified, no pain, no injustice, no violence, but all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation calling on the name of the Lord, knowing him and his grace forever. And if that doesn't bring you a little bit of encouragement today, I don't know what will, frankly. So take that to heart and uh, be encouraged today. Father, thank you for these verses that remind us that in the midst of a crooked world, that you are even now readying yourself for battle, coming to act, to bring justice, to bring righteousness, to bring vengeance on wrongdoers. But even more than that, to bring salvation to those who would truly repent Uh, Lord, might these verses encourage us? Might they motivate us to take the gospel so that all will call on the name of the Lord and and repent? Uh, But Lord, these verses bring us so much hope for what the future holds, that we don't have to be discouraged by the injustices that we see today. Thank you for these pictures uh, of of the future that that bring us such encouragement and such blessing in, in the midst of the 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 injustice that we see and experience today. Thank you, Lord. We're we're grateful. We're confident. Uh, Make us, Lord, about your work until you come. In Christ's name, amen.